Pop-Tarts Frosted Strawberry, quantity one, total $2.99. Nantucket Nectar's Orange Mango, which is like the the Snapple alternative if you're very refined, quantity two, total $2.70. So the subtotal is- This is Anil Dash. He's our editorial consultant and an OG in the tech world. And I'm not here to judge, but for some reason, he still has all his digital receipts from online delivery orders he made 20 years ago. I was working at a little startup and we were at the top of the Empire State Building. So it was really a pain to go out and get a food or snacks. But then he found Cosmo.com, an online delivery company that was founded in 1998 in New York City. It was a lot like Postmates, but there was no delivery charge and customers weren't allowed to tip the workers, even when they had to take an elevator 76 floors up. If you're a delivery guy on a timer, you are, you know, checking in with security getting to the right elevator bank, you're waiting. I mean, it's a hundred story building, right? So you're just like hating life the whole way up. And you're like, here's your Pop-Tarts. Anil and the delivery guy were separated by 70 stories, but they had something in common. They were both new workers in the dot-com boom. And although Anil was a programmer and the delivery worker was pounding the pavement, they both left behind the stable jobs of their parents' generation and they took a huge leap of faith. And that doesn't always work out. You couldn't, like, you know, anybody who's capable of basic math is like, well, this doesn't seem sustainable. You you couldn't possibly see all that and think, yep, this is going to be around for the next 20 years. And you know, Anil was right. Cosmo and many other dot-coms went poof, but not before fundamentally changing the culture of work in the United States. Hi, I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Go For Broke, where we're looking at the wild excitement and the fallout of the dot-com bubble. Where we left off last episode, the bubble had burst for the entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists, and Jane and Joe Schmo investors. Today, we're going to follow the story of the hype and the crash through the eyes of another group of folks who were trying to go for broke, the workers. Dot-com workers witnessed more than just the get-rich promise of the period. They experienced a fundamental shift in workplace culture. They were working longer hours and with less job security, swept along by the glee of the dot-com boom and the promise of a big payday. But that opportunity to get rich came with some risk. The money that was flowing into the dot-com economy was creating new jobs for the young people who were out there hustling. So my name is Devaney Boyle, and I started at Cosmo.com in November of 1999. I had just graduated from Antioch College and I was a single mom of a six-year-old and I couldn't find a job. And I was formerly been in the restaurant industry and I was absolutely determined not to go back. Devaney worked for the same company as the guy who delivered Anil's Pop-Tarts, but in Seattle. And she was part of a generation of folks who were letting go of the idea that they were going to put on a suit and work for the same company for 25 years and then retire with a gold watch and a pension. Devaney did end up wearing a suit, though. It just looked a little bit different. On her first day, she thought she was going to start as a driver, but then the marketing team approached her with an opportunity. They said, does anybody here wear a size six? And I said, yes. And they said, come with me. I went to the back office and they gave me this like lime green outfit to wear, glitter skirt, lime green hat and lime green Nike shoes. Devaney was going to be on the street team for Cosmo, looking like a disco Christmas elf handing out swag near the Space Needle. Around the same time, down in San Francisco, another grocery delivery service was starting to take orders. 
It was called Webvan. And instead of Pop-Tarts, it focused on delivering like actual grocery groceries. My full name is Randall Joseph Cervantes, but I always go by Randy Cervantes. I was the first driver. Randy was a former delivery driver for FedEx. He was new to the dot-com scene and psyched about the things that the company was offering. The dot-com companies had to compete with each other, so they had pretty good benefits, actually. And one thing that they were very adamant about when they hired us was you're going to get stock and you're going to get free food. And the company is expected to do really well. You know, the insurance was great, health insurance. So they said, you know, this is how much we give couriers. They did pay better. It did pay back. I think at that time it was like three, three or four dollars more than than what everybody else was getting in, in normal delivery jobs. Along with better pay and decent health care, there were other perks. The dot-com bubble really ushered in the era of free food and workplaces that felt like college. Beer fridges, ping pong tables, offices that looked like dorm rooms, couches and beds in offices cocktails served at the office party. Gina Neff is a sociologist and professor at the University of Oxford who studies innovation, the digital transformation of industries, and how new technologies impact work. She says these companies had a real come-as-you-are kind of attitude. Tattoos at work, sneakers at work, jeans at work, piercings at work, bowls of candy. Ideas about fun at work, that work should be fun, that work should be creative, that your work should help you build towards something. Devaney told us that folks would actually play bike polo in one of the Cosmo warehouses and that there was even an RV where people would go and smoke pot. It's very much like, I'm not a regular job, I'm a cool job. Here's Gina again. The idea that you could be managed by somebody who looked like you or thought like you, the idea that you could be managed by somebody who was close to your age, the idea that you were in it together with the people you worked with and you were building something that would change the world. That was exciting. For our man, Randy, that meant that he was doing more than just driving. He was building something. It was very fun because they let me do whatever I want. You know, they knew that I knew what I was doing. And so I was able to write a lot of the standard operating procedures. Very quickly, both Devaney and Randy became about that started from the bottom, now we're here kind of life. I got promoted a lot. I think it was like five promotions total and making more and more money. And I was very respected. I started as a driver, moved to a marketer, was eventually a delivery driver and ended as an operations manager. But along with all of those promotions, all those free snacks, came a lot of hard work and long hours, which was all by design. They were specifically looking for and recruiting workers who wanted to work all the time. That's Anne Helen Peterson, a cultural critic and writer whose upcoming book is about changes in work culture. They would do things like provide breakfast so that people would feel better about either coming in super early or pulling an all-nighter. Like they were doing the things that we now recognize as a very blatant means of incentivizing overwork. And they were uh, not only recruiting for those personality types, but then creating environments in which those personality types could flourish. The workers who came to these dot-coms bought into the whole package, believing that they were part of something big and exciting. 
So everyone's grinding and spending long hours doing their work and occasionally taking breaks to wipe Funyun dust on their jeans and get in the game of foosball. But the long hours and perks aside, these workers also had a really clear goal. Well, we all felt that we were going to be rich really fast. (laughs) Randy wasn't alone in this belief. Stock options were par for the course in the dot-com era. And everyone we spoke to thought that that little piece of paper was basically a winning lottery ticket. And it was also exciting to think that I could possibly be part of the gold rush and make a bunch of money. That was super exciting. And the idea that you could get rich was very new. It was part of a larger shift in the relationship between employers and white-collar workers that started before the dot-coms. Mary Eschelbach Hansen is an economist at American University. She says that starting in the 80s, corporations began downsizing big time. They're they're looking to get lean and mean. And most people who study the history of work during this period think like the defining theme is that long-term job security was dead. And that meant instability. So employees wind up then with less confidence in any long-term rewards and greater expectations of of short-term rewards. You know, wages today, perks today, tomorrow is uncertain, you'll never know. So by the time we get to the dot-com era, there's a larger attitude shift that makes short-term rewards more appealing. Because if you're not going to get long-term job security, you might as well shoot for the moon. This brings us to a concept called venture labor, a term coined by Gina Neff, who we heard from earlier. Venture labor describes how people, ordinary people, workers, make investments of their time, of their effort, of sometimes of their own financial capital into the companies where they work. We now no longer talk about jobs as being good jobs or bad jobs, good jobs being stable jobs or having a little bit of risk. No, jobs were something that you started to think through as a, as a strategy. Is this job going to help me strike it rich or not? As I know you remember from earlier in the series, because this is your new favorite podcast, venture capital is about growing really fast. The dot-com companies that were trying to shoot the moon were making new opportunities for folks like Devaney and Randy, but they were also shifting the way that people thought about their jobs. Is this job going to give me the appropriate amount of risk? And the flip side of that is people positioning themselves as being really good at picking them. Picking a job like you'd pick a stock. I'm going to work there because it's going to pay off and it's going to pay off big. Instead of relying on their employers, workers were relying on themselves. That dependable pension became a 401k. The idea of job stability became a chance to win big on IPO day. Nothing was guaranteed, but that was just part of the thrill. The dot-com bubble made risky work seem appealing. The dot-com bubble made risky work seem sexy. After the break, what happens when that allure wears off? Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, 
its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond, from details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. Hi, this is Go For Broke. I'm Julia Furlan. So we just discussed all of the opportunity. And now we're going to explore what happens when that opportunity disappears and what's left is risk. Devaney may have started in that lime green suit, but she actually moved up really quickly. Several promotions later, she became a pretty powerful person in the office. It didn't seem stable, though. Can you describe when it sort of entered your consciousness that this might not last? Things became a little bit strange, and we needed to start laying people off. And they'd say, before it used to say, hire 20 people today, hire 10 people today, hire 30 people today. I mean, that that was how it went. It was such a rush. It was a constant rush to get people in there and train them until they told us to stop. And then we were in this plateau. This was in 2001 when Cosmo.com and Webvan and the entire dot-com industry started to feel that instability. The crash was underway. Stocks began to tank and the venture capital began to dry up. Instead of dot-comers living fat off stock and foosball, the companies were starting to revert back to that 80s lean and mean mentality. Once the financing wasn't working and we didn't have as much money, then they started issuing these orders. We need to lose five people today, 10 people today, 20 people today, whatever it was. And that was our marching orders. Devaney became the kind of person nobody wanted to see walking towards them. When I would walk into the room and make eye contact with somebody, they would just take their finger and roll it across their neck like they were (laughs) the next person. You know that part in the horror movie where you're screaming at the screen, no, don't go in there. We had this room we would pull people into and tell them what was going to happen. And nobody wanted to go into that room. By the very end, she didn't even have to say a word. Nobody would take the walk. They would just skip that whole front office and they'd say, is that what's happening? And I'd give them a look and they'd say, I think I'll just clock out. All that firing took an emotional toll. I mean, of course it did. Nobody wants to let anybody go. And at that point, I was so brand new that sometimes it would just shake me and I would cry afterwards. And it was horrible. It's not what you wanted to do. Eventually, it's Devaney's turn. She's with her daughter on her way to the one vacation she takes every year. And bam. I'm in the car on the way and I get a call from my boss. And he said, hey, don't worry about rushing back home. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, we're closing. And that was that. It ruined my vacation. So in that little room where everyone was crying and getting fired, it wasn't just that they were losing their jobs. Gina says that they were saying goodbye to the belief that they were a part of something that was going to change the world. And they were saying goodbye to the idea that they were going to get rich. I think that was one of the more damaging things, right? That that people really tied the sense of themselves to the hope that maybe they could retire early or, you know, maybe their company really would make it. 
um, rather than take some, you know, kind of satisfaction in the fact that they're in a good career and they enjoy their job and maybe they'll work for a different company. It really, it really made it very personal. All of those perks Devaney and these dot-com workers were getting, all that opportunity to move up within organizations, when that promise dissipated and the dot-com bubble popped, there wasn't much left for the workers. One of the women that I interviewed after the dot-com crash, she said, you know, we thought we might lose our jobs, but we never thought we'd lose all the jobs. At Webvan, Randy watched colleague after colleague box up their things and leave. But ultimately, he decided to stick around until the bitter end. It's kind of like the Titanic. You know, you figured like, wow, we're really not going to make it. The stocks mean nothing. This grand experiment um, is not going to win. And that's the way it was. And it was uh, it was a sad time. If this was the movie Titanic, While everyone was scrambling into lifeboats, Rose is just sitting there watching Jack sink into the ocean instead of helping him onto the door, which definitely could have happened. But I digress. If this was the movie Titanic, Randy would be in the band, gracefully playing as the ship sank lower and lower. When Devaney and Randy and workers like them bet big on these jobs full of opportunity, Gina says they took on a lot of responsibility, a.k.a. risk. These messages that were coming very powerfully through society was about, let's do this as individuals while investors are able to diversify their portfolios. I'm not able to diversify where I work, right? I'm going to work with one employer, maybe two, or maybe I have four jobs. But, you know, I'm not going to be like even a VC portfolio, where I can have, you know, a finger in 50 different companies. I'm certainly not going to be like an institutional investor that might have, you know, investments in a thousand different companies, right? I can't diversify my job. Unlike investors, workers had all their eggs in one basket. And when they got laid off, they had to fend for themselves. You're really on your own. And you better make good choices because that's what's going to pay off. And the flip side of that is is being willing to buy into that game because, well, maybe your choices really are going to pay off. It made me a little sad sometimes because I, I remember thinking like we, we were like one of these companies back then and we were supposed to retire, you know, at, at 35 or 40 <laughs> uh, and it didn't happen. After that, as any unemployed non-millionaire has to do, Randy went on job interviews. And when they looked at his resume, he said people didn't even know what Webvan was. I look upon it with with a lot of sadness, um, you know, because I I thought we were going to do really well. But it was a wonderful time for my three years. Devaney feels like she learned a lot in a short amount of time, and that was helpful. For me personally, it was really about learning about the process. And when I could see that it was falling apart, I thought about it in terms of business in terms of, wow, this is the most incredible experience that I've ever been part of because I was able to see a business grow from the bottom to the very pinnacle and think we're all going to be completely rich to taking it all down. It was like the complete business life cycle on steroids. Well, what really strikes me is like the way she's describing her takeaway, right? Because what she's 
done in our own mind is turn this into a resume building experience. Mary Hansen, the economist, says it makes a lot of sense that Devaney is reclaiming the narrative of being there when things fell apart. Which is what you have to do to go out there and try and differentiate what you're selling from all the other people applying for this job, right? So she, she has turned the insecurity in her life into the advantage on her resume. Devaney learned how to pivot. All of that individual pressure to succeed, she figured it gave her some wisdom to share. Devaney's now a career counselor for Gen X women like herself, because a lot of folks from the dot-com boom watched a lot of promise go away really quickly. Here's Anne Helen Peterson again. So it's this idea that you could actually have the American dream, right? That is unavailable to so many people in this stage of capitalism. You could achieve it, not through work, hard work necessarily, but through luck, right? And so to have that taken away is, is heartbreaking. It's like a tragedy at the end of a movie. So let's take this back to the movie Titanic for a second here. Rose? Rose is going to be fine. Because like most privileged people, when things start to sink, they can whistle for a lifeboat. But Jack, our working class kid who thought he was king of the world, he ends up at the bottom of the cold ass ocean. And nobody gets on the Titanic thinking they're going to wind up like Jack. Looking at this through the lens of risk and reward, the risks that the dot-com workers took on didn't always have the rewards that they thought were waiting for them. In the end, all they got was the risk. It's so risky. It goes from like, I did all of this committed work over the course of decades to I happened to get a job at a company that sells whatever on the internet. And he, fingers crossed, things will turn out for me, right? It's such a crapshoot. Next time on Go For Broke, it's back to the future, which is the present. 20 years after the dot-com crash, tech companies with big ideas are back. But things are different now. Or are they? Special thanks to Epic's Joshua Behrman. Charlotte Silver is our associate producer. Our consulting producer is Melise Tussere. Go for Broke is produced by Bridget Armstrong, Megan Kinane, and Zach Mack. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Anil Dash is our editorial consultant for the series. Nathan Miller engineered this episode. Gautam Trikishan composed our theme song. Art Chung is our showrunner. Our executive producer is Nishat Kurwa. Go for Broke is a production of Epic and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Your vote counts. The popular vote matters. Tell your people. And subscribe for free to the series on your favorite podcast app. I'm Julia Furlan, and my heart will go on. 